Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest for the hour is the writer Jennifer Siner. She describes herself as a writer, teacher, mother, and certified yoga instructor, and she's professor of English at Utah State University. Her new book is titled Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World, a collection of essays, beginning with the conception of her first son, which coincided with the tragic death of her uncle on an Alaskan river, and ending a decade later in the Himalayan home of the Dalai Lama, Uh, Siner offers a lyric exploration of language, love, and the promise inherent in the stories we tell to remember. Uh, Previous books include The Extraordinary Work of Ordinary Writing, which centers on the diary of her great-great-great-aunt Annie Ray, a woman homesteaded in the Dakotas in the late 19th century. Her memoir, Ordinary Trauma, is a coming-of-age story about her military childhood during the late Cold War. And her essay collection, Letters Like the Day, takes inspiration from the letters of Georgia O'Keeffe. Jennifer Siner, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad to be here. And uh, here is uh, is a matter of the pandemic. We would have you in studio, but to have you on phone. Um, yes. so, so that's where I want to start. Uh, okay. Seems like I'm starting every program that way. Uh, how are how are you and your family doing in the pandemic? Oh, thanks for asking, Tom. Uh, we are doing well. My husband, Michael Souter, is also um, on the faculty in the English department at Utah State, so he and I are both teaching our classes over Zoom this semester, but my two sons, Aiden and Kellen, they're at Logan High School, and right now the school is face-to-face, so they leave the house every morning with a mask tucked into their backpacks and head out for the day. How are you? How are your students uh, seem to be doing? It's, it, it, I think it's more difficult to connect on Zoom. Uh, it is more difficult to connect, but it's really interesting. Um, years ago, when I I hadn't been at Utah State for very long, uh, when the World Trade Center, when the towers went down, I was uh, in the classroom the next day. So I was in the classroom the following day. And I had a friend who was on sabbatical that year, so she was not teaching. And it made me really realize how lucky I was to be surrounded by young people at that moment, um, because uh, they ultimately give us a sense of hope, because they, I know it sounds cliche, but they really are the future. And so to be so fortunate to be sitting with students college date students at this time, and to have the opportunity to sort of move through this new normal together is really an enormous gift. I feel very uh, fortunate to be in the classroom right now, and I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. So even though it is over Zoom, which is a bit um, distant, I mean, there's no doubt about it. I tell jokes, and I don't ever hear anybody laugh, (laughs) which is a very strange sensation. Mm -hmm. I just have to assume they think I'm... uh, you know, even slightly amusing, but uh, so it does feel far. You feel far away, but um, I just don't know where else where else I would rather be. And so it's just a privilege to be with them and to hear them as they talk about um, how they're handling it. And they're just great sense of empathy and compassion uh, in knowing that. Um, you know, really, what I hear them talk the most about is how they can't assume what's happening in anyone else's life right now. That we just have to assume that everyone is struggling. And even though that struggle for many of us may be invisible, it may look very much on the surface that there's nothing amiss, 
Um, I don't think there's anything, I don't think we can call this anything other than a kind of trauma that has gripped the country and the world, and there's a lot of grief. And so um, I think they, more than a lot of people maybe understand it, and uh, it's just really um, joyful to be able to meet with them, and I get to talk with them about art. And so often I begin my classes by saying, you know, for the next hour and 15 minutes, all we have to do is focus on these words. That's all we have to do. And we can let the rest of the world wait outside the door of that hour and 15 minutes, and we just get to be with language. And that is a true gift. And so to be able to do that with them is is really healing, I think. That's pretty wise. You say this coming from your students. They, they, they can't assume they understand whatever is going through. You have to assume everybody's going through some trauma. Right. I think then that it does come from them. I mean, I'm, I have a lot of students who have, in fact, in the spring, ironically, I was teaching a course in grief writing. So we were um, in a class reading other people who used writing as a way to describe or to work through grief. And much of that class was based on asking, what is grief? Who owns it? Who has it? Often we um, assign a certain period for someone to grieve, like a widow. Maybe she gets a year before we expect her to somehow buck up and recover. So we talked a lot about how in um, the U.S. in particular, we have very um, definite ideas about what qualifies as grief and who gets to have it. And we sort of exploded those ideas during the semester to realize that, you know, grief is everywhere and always, and that there are lots of ways to experience it. And recovery is a myth. You don't, it's not something you get over. It's just something you sort of learn to carry. So a lot of those students then are also with me in my writing classes this semester. So they've brought all of that with them. So our conversation often is about um, how invisible a lot of this is. What uh, so you you teach writing right uh, by and large? I do. Yeah. Yes, the grief class was a literature class, but generally, yeah. yes, they teach creative nonfiction. Right. So I guess my question goes to both. Um, maybe starting with writing, the the process of writing. How uh, I'm guessing that can be an advantage. It can be a, a tool. It can be a skill uh, to, someone can use to to process the, the trauma, the grief, the, you know, the, the sadness, the, the pressure, the, you know, whatever we're going through in this, this extraordinary, mm-hmm. tumultuous time. For sure. I mean, I could talk all day about the ways in which writing can be uh, healing. I um, personally, when the university went into um, quarantine, when we all went online last March, and it literally happened overnight on um, that Friday I guess it was a Thursday is when we found out, and we all went home that day and didn't come back. And the thing I did is I began a pandemic journal that night. And I'm on day 204 of my pandemic journal. And I don't always write about the pandemic. I do usually um, point to external things going on in the world that I wouldn't normally do in my... I mean, I've I've kept a journal for decades, So I might not normally talk about politics. I might not normally talk about headlines. I'm certainly not normally putting down COVID case counts in my journal. But with my pandemic journal, I've been doing more of that. But it's not always about the pandemic. It's, um, you know, it's about my day as well and things I'm thinking about. But I am struck by how much 
stuff, that journal is just filled with question marks and uncertainty. And it's just, I'm constantly asking, what next? What now? How to think about it? How to hold it? Because as we all know, every day seems to bring something new that we have to try and carry. So for me personally, that is exactly where I went. I went to uh, journal keeping. There's a long history and a lot of research that backs up the idea that if we write about, honestly, just the act of writing itself, it doesn't even have to be about our days, but if we uh, start to externalize through writing what is happening inside us internally, it works almost like therapy. It just gives us a conversation we can have with ourselves, and we come to know what we think. That's what writing does. It lets us know what we think. And we learn that by um, setting our words down on the page. That you you say that resonates with me the, the, that uncertainty and that it's not going to be resolved mm-hmm. anytime soon, right? And so, how, how what would you say about how how do we carry that? Well, I think it's a really good question, and I remember early on when this was happening. Um, I remember I was reading this, um, and I wish I could tell you who it was, but there was a meditation. A uh, teacher, and she was talking about how um, it's not that things were uncertain, that it's not that things were more certain before. It's always been uncertain. That's life. Life is uncertain. It's just that the pandemic has revealed just how uncertain the world is. And so trying to sort of adjust your thinking toward the idea that change, transformation, is the, is the only constant thing that really is what marks our days. Nothing is going to remain whole, pure, and unbroken. It's all going to shift and change. Um, and except, of course, accepting that and realizing that um, that's that's the security, that's the stability is uncertainty, mm. and learning to stand on that and still being okay. Which is a big shift. I'm not saying it's easy, and obviously the uncertainty of our world right now, for me personally, for sure, is the most uncertain I've ever had to um, live in terms of my place in the world. Now, I would say becoming a mother for the first time (laughs) would be the other place I would point to as a moment of, you know, pure uncertainty and not knowing. But that was me experiencing something very personally. This is me experiencing something with everybody else having the same experience at the same time. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I think we're all searching. We're all searching for the the, the way to handle this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and a part of it is personal. Part of it is of necessity must be individual. But uh, part of it we need each other, right? course, and it's what makes this all so ironic, is that the, at the very moment when we, both, when we most need each other, it's the very moment when we must be isolated from one another. Um, and, of course, then that does show us how important those relationships are to us. And I think you and most of the listeners, I mean, I've had more Zoom reunions in the last six months with people I haven't heard from for 30 years because there is this real understanding of how important those connections are when those connections are threatened or taken away from us. And so one of the things that I share with friends that, um, you know, and other people are using this too, but just this idea of these COVID silver linings. So 
amidst all of this suffering and all of these losses, and, and, and everyone has a list of losses. And the thing about it is that, um, you know, loss is loss. It, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, the, the, you can't compare the scale of it. And so the loss is, is great for everybody. But also I think we can point to um, maybe places that um, there's a bit, you know, that, that the, the pandemic has opened something, a way of seeing that we're going to hold on to, I hope. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe past all of this if, if we ever move past. Right. It seems seems that way, doesn't it? And, and then you know the, the the pandemic, COVID, um, you know, it's waxes and wanes, and mm-hmm. second wave in Europe and in the U.S. seems like I we know. never never got through the first wave. Um, right. and, and then overlaid on that, at least in the U.S., is this this tumultuous election season and just this polarization and. Uh, Dehumanizing of, yep. of the other side, right? Um, I wonder. Let me phrase it this way: What do you do? You have conversations about all this with your sons. What do you What do you say? Well, they're actually very. Both of the boys are very interested in politics, and they were the ones that wanted to watch the presidential debate most last week. So they and Aiden has gotten to the point because he is on the debate team at Logan High. He actually um, the news. You know, come, his news feed is uh, every day he checks it, and so he's, he's very aware of what's going on. And the same is true with Kellen. So they, um, we, we can have conversations. We sort of, we tend to agree with each other. So there's not a lot of it's not a fraught conversation, but more just a conversation about what's happening in the world. And um, I think what's interesting is one of the things that I've always taught in my writing classes. And in the classes I teach in literature is that we tend to think that the private space is really disconnected from the public space. And what happens in the home around the kitchen table is, um, first of all, to domestic, their domestic matters. They are, um, you know, sort of the smaller ways we live our lives. And they're private. They're only happening within the walls of our house. And then the public story is being enacted on a stage. It's coming through the news. It's being reported on. It's being researched, right? It has all of these big narratives around it. But the same, the thing is, they're the same space. There's no, it's a porous boundary, if a boundary at all. So we might like to think that we shut the door when we arrive home and that whatever's happening outside doesn't come inside, but that's not true. I mean, we can see the the rate of alcoholism is increasing, the rate of domestic violence is increasing. And it's because there is no there's no um chasm between what we see happening, for example, in the presidential debate and then how we're gonna treat each other inside our house. So it's it's deeply connected and that's what makes it so difficult because one of the things that I think a lot of us have felt is we have nowhere we can go. There's nowhere to go and be away from it. You can't go on a trip. You can't head to Paris. You can't. Um, you can't go shopping at the shopping mall. Like you can't do the things we all might normally have done. But of course, that then turns us back on ourselves, and we do what we probably needed to do from the beginning, which is learn to sit with it and hold it, rather than try and package it up 
go on a trip, make it go away. Mm. Just have to sit with it. So uh, the the I guess the feeling I have, and I think a lot of people that I talk to, is exhaustion. With <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just a lot. Um, yeah. So sit with it. You're saying what? Uh, how do we sit with it? Yeah. I think that's a really good question, and it's a strange kind of exhaustion. I mean, I just feel like it's a strange, almost numb feeling. And um, especially because for me right now, for Michael, you know, we're in our house pretty much all day long. And um, we're teaching, but we're teaching in a different way. And, uh, you know, for me to go home basically means I go up the stairs and now I'm home instead of down in my office. And so... um, it's, it's a strange kind of exhaustion because if I were on campus, of course, I'd be running around like a crazy person from one meeting to the other, and I'd be going from one building to another, and there would be all of this activity and all of these people, and that has its own kind of exhaustion. But this one is a strange feeling. Um, it's like you're almost tired without a reason, like a reason you can name, and that, of course, is because you're, you have, you're grief. You have grief, and we just don't say it that way, but that's why we're so tired. That's why we can't uh, rise in the way we might normally have risen. That's why things seem kind of dull and, um, you know, less interest in general because there's all of this grief that we're holding. So then the question is, right, so how do you sit with it? And then the answer is never an easy one. That's what Michael always says, you know. Meditation is a simple practice, but it's a difficult one. It's not easy because all you can do then is to um, name name the feelings, feel what you're feeling, and uh, notice that in a 20-minute set, those a lot of feelings come and go. And just like everything else in the world, the feelings don't stay either. They're going to keep moving. And so just noticing that can sometimes feel like you have a little bit more space to breathe because you know it's not permanent. Mm. It's just, it's not going to be the same the next minute or the next minute. It's not going to be the same tomorrow either. So meditation, so kind of, sorry, uh, meditation is, is, is a key for you, it sounds like. Well, I've definitely, I think a lot of people have, uh, turned or returned to their meditative practices, whatever those mean for people. I personally sit in the morning with Michael. We sit in the morning. That's not the only way you can meditate. I could make an argument that my run in the morning is a kind of meditation. Um, So it's just any practice for me, any practice where you are um, entirely or you're trying to be entirely present in whatever is unfolding. Sometimes writing for me can be meditative. I'm so with the words as I write that you experience this sense of a cessation of time Mm. because you're absolutely entirely only in the present moment. You have no idea what's happening. The idea of time or lunch, that's all gone. Instead, you're just right there. So I think a lot of people have returned or turned toward these practices that um, allow them, because really, that's liberating. It's really liberating to just occupy the present moment and not be worrying about the past or fearing for the future. Hmm. So if we can get to that space, it's a delicious and beautiful space. So for me, it's meditation and yoga. It's also journaling. Those are sort of the things that I use as medicine in my life. 
Well, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll dive into the book. Um, okay, great. And uh, Jennifer Siner is with us. Uh, she described herself as a writer, teacher, mother, certified yoga instructor. She is professor of English at Utah State University, author of several books. The latest is when we'll be talking about Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from our members and Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, presenting the 2021 Greater Cache Valley Economic Summit, June 3rd, featuring Lieutenant Governor Deidre Henderson. Topics include the current economic state and future of northern Utah. Sponsorship and registration information available at cachechamber.org. Did you know that the words lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender are used very infrequently, if at all, in state social studies guidelines across the nation? The exclusion of LGBTQ individuals, issues, and social movements in social studies teaching guidelines has significant implications for students who identify as LGBTQ or other marginalized groups. Researchers in social studies education are working to create more inclusive standards to contribute to a learning atmosphere where all voices and perspectives are valued. Inclusive guidelines support curriculum and instruction that benefits students' physical, mental, and academic health. This segment of Did You Know That? has been brought to you by our members and the Emma Eccles-Jones College of Education and Human Services committed to mentoring tomorrow's educators, researchers, and clinicians, located on campuses in Logan and 26 other sites throughout Utah. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest is writer Jennifer Siner. Uh, she's a professor of English at Utah State University, author of several books. Latest is Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World. Uh, so, uh, Jennifer Sunner, I want, um, I want to make sure we get this in, and, and, it, and it relates, I think, uh, well to the discussion we were having uh, previous to the break. I want to skip to the very end of the book. Um, hurt People Hurt People is the, is the final essay. Mm-hmm. Um, very powerful. Um, and you you link uh, at least a couple of uh, of things. Uh, an incident that happened to your son when he was younger, mm-hmm. and and then the Kavanaugh hearings, uh, Doctor Blasey Ford, mm-hmm. um, and then you you go on to link that to a, a powerful play that the, the, your family uh, experienced uh, at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. I wonder if you mm-hmm. if you have your book with you. Maybe it'd be best to have you read this passage. It's page one ninety three. Okay. And it uh, just starts middle of the page while Blasey Ford studies acute psychological trauma. And then over the page, uh, the first paragraph there on one ninety four. Okay, great. While Blasey Ford studies acute psychological trauma, I spend my days thinking and writing about what I call ordinary trauma. Underneath this essay, I know, rides the question of scale. Aiden was only slapped, Lazy Ford assaulted, the Jews in World War II exterminated. These traumas are clearly not the same. Acute psychological trauma involves an inability to articulate the story of the trauma itself. The trauma haunts the person, refuses to be named, and does its damage by remaining outside the realm of language. But acute psychological trauma is not the only kind of trauma that passes undetected. Ordinary trauma does as well. Those events in our life that have the potential to harm, 
but are made instead to feel ordinary and therefore to pass unnoticed. I grew up on military bases in the late Cold War when the possibility of nuclear war was ingested with the breakfast cereal. Nuclear annihilation was my constant companion. Battleships passed just beyond my backyard. We all experience ordinary trauma. The 24-hour news cycle alone creates a kind of numbness where shootings and beatings become almost mundane. I see hints of ordinary trauma when the counselor tells Aiden that Carson has crossed a line. Boys will be boys. I think, though, whether considering acute psychological trauma or ordinary trauma, the question of scale is not always the best question to ask. Trauma is not experienced on a universal continuum. It's experienced individually. The irony found in trauma mirrors the irony found in pain. While pain is experienced in isolation, it is universally shared. I cannot know your pain exactly, but we both know pain. A slap is not a shot, but both require a shift in the telling of an individual story about the world. Uh, so Jennifer Siner reading from her book, uh, Sky Songs. This is the, the, the last essay in the book, Hurt People, Hurt People. Um, so you say they're acute psychological trauma, not the only kind of trauma. In fact, your you know, previous book is titled Ordinary Trauma. You say ordinary trauma um, can go undetected as well as acute psychological trauma, uh, but the those events in our life have the potential to harm but are made instead to feel ordinary, therefore pass unnoticed. Um, and you, know, you talked about several examples like this. Uh, therefore, ordinary trauma, I think, can be all the more hurtful because it's made to seem ordinary. Yes, and in fact, I would say, like, uh, we can even see this happening in our own lives with the pandemic, where if you do walk into a grocery store and are not shocked by everybody wearing a mask, or you do not pass a, a elementary school when it's getting out and see kindergartners walking out wearing masks, if that is no longer shocking you, then the trauma of that has become ordinary. It's become something that you don't even consider. And what does it mean to live in a world where six-year-olds wear masks to school and for us to feel okay about that, to think that, oh, that's just how it goes? And so you can even see what's happening in our world today, the ways in which things that are not um, mundane are actually quite extraordinary, are made by the world around us into things that are ordinary, and then, there we, then we just ingest them, and it's no longer upsetting to see these masked kids. And so I do think ordinary trauma um, is something... I'm not, I'm not alone. There's a really... I, and seen, I just read a book where, um, let me see, I'll come up with the title in a second. Uh, the Body Keeps the Score. It's uh, Vanderkolk is the author's last name. And he's writing about how this definition of, like, of acute psychological trauma isn't very useful. He's a psychologist, so he's writing about it in terms of within the medical field, within the psychological field. It's not the only way to think about trauma because we know that trauma is happening in lots of different ways, uh, and it's not always in these very dramatic and acute ways. And so we have to have language, and we have to have, he's arguing, diagnoses for these other kinds of trauma that we're experiencing. 
So you say at the end of this passage, a slap is not a shot, but both require a shift in the telling of an individual individual story about the world. So how we tell it. Right. That really comes way back to work I did in graduate school um, when I read a book called The Wounded Storyteller. That's Arthur Frank is his name. And in that, he has this extraordinary um, opening chapter where he talks about how um, we all have these maps that we live with, and the maps are created by the world around us. Um, They're created from a very early age. You know, you could even argue the map is being created before birth. And the map is what we use to guide our lives. But for many of us, you experience something that shreds the map. That's acute psychological trauma. So when something horrible happens to you, the map you've carried your whole life, it's worthless. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't, it's not useful in navigating your life any longer. And so you're without a way of telling the story. And so he, Frank says, you have to, the um, person becomes a wounded storyteller, and they have to learn to tell their story to make their map through their wound. That's the only way they can now be in the world. And it's not a negative thing. It doesn't mean that they are living half a life. It means that they have learned to remake their map and to um, own, sit with, claim the things that have happened in their lives, to not reject them or deny them, and to tell their story through them. And it's going to be a different story. We experience this every day, but it's the more dramatic things that happen in our lives that really show us how we're constantly remaking our maps and retelling our stories and how a lot of that is happening because of the wounds that we receive. I assume there's power in that and and maybe power even even if uh, in external things that we focus on th- there isn't the progress that we hoped. I I I resonated with this uh passage in this essay you talk about uh, your experience the day of the Kavanaugh hearings and Dr. Blasey Ford is testifying. And you say, the day after the hearings, I sent her, meaning Dr. Blaze Ford, my gratitude for his strength. Even as I cried with the other women in my Friday morning meditation group, we reassured one another that things were changing. The old was shuddering a dying breath. Um, I don't know what you think, what, what you thought as, the, as everything proceeded. What do you think now? Well, I mean, I think for a lot of women, that moment marks... <laughs> I mean, we could say it marks a lot of things. For the women in my meditation group, because of the women that they are, the narrative that we wanted to bring forward was that there are things happening in our world right now, which is this sort of last gasp of old ways of seeing, being, and doing, and that these things have to gasp as they give way. They're not going to go gently. In fact, they may go with lots of anger and even violence, but they're going. And that we, I mean, that's the way I'm going to choose to see those kinds of things, is that um, we are making progress, we are moving forward, um, but it's not going to, there's no straight line here. It's not all of a sudden going to be clear and easy. And um, I think for us sitting Friday morning in that group, uh, we did cry a lot. Um, a lot of us could see ourselves in her, in her experience. And I could directly see myself 
She is about my age, and she studies uh, acute psychological trauma. And um, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's probably a woman in, on the planet who has not, cannot tell some story of violation. And so I think we could see ourselves there, and for her not to be heard was um, horrible, horrible. Mm. But um, you hope that, you know, there has to be a last time. And maybe that, that's the last time. There has to be that last moment in which the world says, enough, no more. So we're going to get there. We're going to get to that moment. You, you have hope. We'll get there. I, I have to have hope. I have children. Mm-hmm. I don't have mm-hmm. the option of not having hope. I mean, there's just, that's not, you, as a mother, I cannot choose to give up. I can't choose to say, well, no, it's a disaster. It's going to burn. And this is what I'm handing to my beautiful boys. Mm-hmm. I, I can't and I won't do that. So, no, I'm, I, will, I will continue to hope. That's what every inhalation is. Every inhalation is the chance to start again. Every inhalation brings with it creation. Every inhalation is this new opportunity. So as long as I can inhale, that's hope right there. I wonder if we, uh, well said, uh, I'm, uh, if we turn to the uh, the very, from from the last to the first. So the, okay. the, uh, the first essay is called Headwaters, uh, subtitled For Your Father. Um... And this is extraordinary. You 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 link the conception of your first child with uh, the the you know timing is very 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 close with the the death of your uncle Jerry, yeah. uh, who was out with your father in the Alaskan wilderness. Um, but before we get to that to get to that, you say you, you remember that your father was a was a storyteller and he would spin uh, stories and that and that's how you went to bed. That's how you went to sleep every yeah. night, which is yeah. a which is a nice that's a nice image. Oh, it was beautiful, and he made all his stories up, and he would sit with us, in. Uh, we would all gather in one of the beds, and we, the three of us would be there, and we were always in his stories, and we always went on adventures, We would, um, and we always succeeded in what it, whatever the adventure was, and it was always the three kids. Um, my, he never wrote himself or told himself into his tales. It was always the three of us. And, you know, looking back, I recognize, you know, what he was teaching us was resourcefulness and um, strength and courage and all of these things, but he did it through these kinds of adventure tales. And then my brothers and I would take those stories into our play, and so the favorite play game that we did was Three Kids Lost, and we would get on my brother's bunk beds, and we would um, pretend that we were these three kids lost, usually on a houseboat of some sort of ship. My dad was in the Navy, so we're often on water. Water was important to my whole family. And um, that's what we would play. And we would play, in effect, a kind of survival game, but always together. It was always the three of us. And uh, in my dad's tellings, we always we always won and we always returned home. And it's, it's interesting because Michael... When our boys were little, Michael also told them stories, and his were always full of adventure as well and often involved the natural world. So he really, without knowing it, really took the place of what my dad um, did for me as a child. So I'm grateful to both of them. So later, this traumatic experience, um, your dad's up with his brother in Alaska, his brother Mm -hmm. dies. 
fact, there's yeah. a, you know, there's a investigation. They investigate your dad. I guess that's routine. You know, if you're okay. the only two mm-hmm. people, he's the only other person involved right. up, up there. Turns out, um, you know, your uncle had had some health problems, etc. But, um, and then at the same time, um, you you don't know it yet, but you're you soon find out you're pregnant with I think your first son. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I wonder if you'd read the, this is the very end of the essay, and it gets back to telling our stories and passing our stories along. So this is uh, page twenty. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the the middle of the page, the morning my father arrives, uh, just to the end of the essay. Okay. So this is when um, my father, what he has to do is he has to basically, not basically, literally, navigate um, this Avon boat, this kind of rubber boat, down um, the Alatna River with Jerry's body in it. And the river has filled because of the rains and the... Um, the uh, melting of the permafrost, so the rivers are torrential. And so my father um, is being repeatedly thrown from the raft. He's worried that he's going to lose Jerry's body. He is having to sometimes uh, get out and pull and hold the raft with his arms. One time he's thrown out, he can't get back to the raft. Um, And finally he makes it to the only... They were told right before they left that um, there was one cabin... In the woods on Tuckahulu Lake, there was one cabin that had a satellite phone. And in fact, the National Park had given those, there were two retired teachers, had given them the satellite phone just for this kind of emergency out in this in the back country where communication is impossible. So um, my father does eventually make it to Tuckahulu Lake. The morning my father arrives at Tuckahulu Lake, I write in my journal that I am going rafting in two days down the Snake River. Worried that the time away from my desk is poorly spent, I imagine writing an essay about the experience, what it is like to float down a river that begins in the mountains and runs to the sea. Mostly I complain about the dog and how easily I'm distracted by household projects. Still, this is the last entry I have before I learn of Jerry's death, the last recorded narrative of what my life was like when Jerry was alive my father whole, and my son the size of a period. I like to imagine that at the very moment Jerry slipped the ropes that bind us to this planet, my son Aiden was conceived, so that for the briefest of moments, the past, present, and future stood together and recognized one another. I like to imagine that the suffering my dad experienced, pain that has haunted him every day since his return, is measured out among us so that we all carry part of the burden. I like to imagine that the stories I tell here, like the stories my dad told me as a child and the ones he recited as a, rema- as a way to remain sane on the river, have the power to reach across distance and time and death and connect me to him and him to Jerry and Jerry to Aiden. Jerry can no longer tell his story and I must carry Aiden's for him until he is older. Someday he will carry mine, and I will tell my father's, and loss will be found in language. Yeah, beautiful. Uh, so there is, I mean, we want to remember, right? We There's a power right. in remembering. It's, that's what story does. I get writing does that as well. Right. No, and... Um, it's really remarkable if you think about your life. I tell this to my students all the time. 
you know, they'll tell me they don't have anything to write about, or they'll say their life is boring. I hear that a lot from my first uh, introductory students. And um, so I usually point them to an exercise that Anne Lamott gives us in Bird by Bird, which is simply to start writing about your school lunch. It doesn't really matter where you start. What happens when you start to write, say, about your school lunch, maybe even smaller, Anne Lamott says, maybe just talk about the carrot sticks. What happens is moments come back to us. And those moments matter so deeply, I don't think we understand how much they matter because of the hundreds and thousands, even millions of moments that have made up our days. Of all of those moments, this handful returns to us when we think about third grade school lunch. And I tell my students, we've carried those stories, we've carried those moments because they matter deeply to who we think we are. They matter to us as artists. They have meaning in the fact that we have held on to them. They may seem ordinary, but they're far from it. You've pulled them out and held on to them, and that imbues them automatically with a weightiness that your job as an artist is to sort of figure out and define. And so I do, I mean, memory obviously does, it does matter. And one of the things I don't think we ask ourselves enough is not so much we spend a lot of time thinking, what do we remember or what have we forgotten? But I think the better question to ask always, even just as human beings, is why do we remember it that way? Why is that the thing we've chosen to carry? What does that say about who we are, where we've been, and what we are becoming? So the question of why is the one that matters most for me in terms of memory. By the way, uh, talking about, uh, you know, training writers and you, yourself being a writer, um, I was tickled by a, a, little, a, a little story you tell. Um, you went to an event, uh, Madeline Langle was speaking. Mm-hmm. And you asked her a question. Do you remember what that question was? Oh, yes. I, um, I asked her, um, how can I be a writer? Because nothing bad has happened to me. And she says... Just write, the happening will come. <laughs> and it's just yeah. such a it's such a question. I mean, my students uh, worry about this all the time. They say they have nothing to write about because they have not suffered. They think that writing has to be dramatic. And I, too, felt that way. And the irony, of course, of that story is that um, my first husband was about to leave me. I was 24 years old, and I was about to be divorced. So, of course, that was a great happening in my life and absolutely one of the most profound shaping events. Um, of my life. So Langle was right. Like, just wait one second. You're going to have the suffering. Don't worry. Um, so uh, I do I do think it's something that young writers do worry about. And I have a lot of young writers who feel like maybe when they're done with school, they need to go, you know, literally they ask me if I would recommend living on the streets of New York or going and wandering around in Europe with just, you know, a pair of shoes because they want to make sure they have experience. The thing is, we're having experiences all the time, and a writer isn't looking for extraordinary things. A writer is just simply looking, and then they know that in the looking, there's meaning, and they find it. Hmm. Let's take another break. When we come back, we have our final uh, segment with Jennifer Siner. The new book is Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World. We'll have more following this. 
Hi, I'm Natalie Gawkner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. A man spends a fortune on a blank white painting and his best friends can't understand why. I didn't like the painting, but I didn't actually hate it. Well, of course not. You can't hate what's invisible. Bob Balaban, Brian Cox, and Jeff Perry star in Yasmina Reza's Art, this week on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, in New York, mostly people have given up on that 7 p.m. ritual, you know, where they bang pans and make noise as tribute to essential workers and healthcare workers. Except on 118th Street, in East Harlem. They haven't stopped. What it's about, that's what's changed over these months. Listen this week. Saturday morning at 10, here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. We're talking with writer Jennifer Siner on the program today. We have another eight minutes left in the program. The new book is Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World. Jennifer Siner is professor of English at Utah State University. Uh, so Jennifer Siner, I'd, I'd like to return to the the um, story we're telling before about Madeleine Lengel and suffering as a writer. That is from an essay called Bowl of Vastness found this striking. I wonder if you could read the, just the first page from this, page 99. It's a very, very striking yes. opening for this, uh, this essay, so just, just this page. Okay. I lost God and my first husband on March 5th, 1995. Together, they walked down the jetway at Honolulu International Airport and boarded a plane bound for Wisconsin. My ex-husband wore a Packers sweatshirt and matching baseball hat. God was dressed in the same white robes he had been wearing 15 years earlier when I took Jesus into my 10-year-old heart in the Quonset hut that served as Sunday school on Pearl Harbor. Over the next few months, I awaited calls from both God and my soon-to-be ex-husband, hoping they would return to me. Sometimes the phone rang. More often, I sat in silence. The last time I hung up, I was sitting on the tiled floor of the lobby in the Ilikai Hotel the cord of the payphone garroting my neck. I can't do this any longer, I said. For the next decade, I didn't hear from either of them. That summer, when I went to the registrar's office at the University of Hawaii to submit my name change form, the secretary congratulated me on my wedding. She would be the first in a long line of people I would need to connect. When Kellen was born with immature lungs and had to spend his first nine days in the NICU, more tube and wire than baby, I prayed. So there's a there's a twist. Uh, Kellen's your second son, I believe, right? He is, yes. Um, and so you go on to say that, uh, I guess, the, the, the God you prayed to that second time at least looked different than the, the one you pictured from before. Yes. 
So that essay is trying to chart this movement in my spiritual life, which is a fairly ironic movement, because um, when I was divorced, I also began my Ph.D., and I became sort of an intellectual atheist. Definitely at the time, there was a sense that, at least with theory, um, that nothing really existed outside of language and that everything was sort of constructed. Reality was made um, largely through language. So that's sort of where I went, and I say in the essay, I just wore a lot of black at the time, and I just um, retreated. I would lock my heart away when I moved into the classroom. And then I moved here to Utah, which is a state that is um, has a very strong presence with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and is called by them Zion. And so I moved to a state that was informed by religion, and it was here that I returned to my understanding of the divine. And so the Bowl of Asnes traces that movement. And, you know, it, it, it begins in moments like uh, with my son Kellen in the NICU and needing something larger than what I had before me and um, wanting to trust in something greater. And then, you know, moves forward, moves forward from there just experiences that have happened to my life. And I remember at one one point in that search, you know, the question I had for myself was, I mean, it seems like I can either choose to believe there's something greater than, than, than me, or I can choose not to believe in that. And which way is going to bring me more joy in my life? If there's no, there's no proof, there's no certainty, nothing is known, which one feels like it is coming from my heart? Which of them feeds who I am, fills my well, makes me um, be a better mother. And for me, that was the choice to believe in something greater Mm. than what I can see in the physical world in front of me. So that is an essay that sort of traces that movement. Uh, A lot in the book that we won't get to, that people uh, pick up the books, well worth the time, Sky Songs, Meditations on Loving a Broken World. We just have about two minutes left. I'm I'm curious. This resonates with me. The, the cemetery, the uh, essay called the cemetery. So you live mm-hmm. in uh, Whitney, I think, uh, just uh, just over the border mm-hmm. in, in Idaho, and you, I guess you and and the family goes off into the to the cemetery. Uh, just to, maybe your one minute version of this. Well, we would walk in the cemetery every day. It was a beautiful cemetery. Nobody went there. It was right by our house. And um, we would take Aiden there when he was, and that's the first place he went. He went to this place of death. And yet it was a vibrant, beautiful place. There were these hawks that lived in the trees, and the trees themselves were magnificent. And there's so much tending and caring that goes on in the cemetery. We would often see the grave diggers section there doing the work of digging these beautiful hand dug graves. And so for me, it was this idea, um, you know, it's the same thing. Um, in much of the book, which is the divisions that we create between inside and outside, between private and public, between our bodies and the rest of the bodies of this world, between death and, and birth, those divisions are false, and they harm us. And so when we can start to uh, live both and rather than either or, uh, not only are we more at peace in the world, but the world is a much more peaceful place. Everything gets to come in under the tent. We accept it all, and we reject nothing. Yeah, in fact, you say, you know, the knowledge of death should feel heavy, but Dave literally whistles while he works. He, he's a craftsman. Yeah. yeah. 
I wish everybody could see the care with which he would dig those graves. They were truly works of art. And I just, there's no way you can then go to that cemetery and not just see it as, in, as a beautiful museum um, and a, a really um, beautiful place. And so we would take little baby Aiden there and he would just lay there, you know, right there with the graves. And um, it brought a lot of peace. Well, we're out of time. We'll leave it there. The, the book is Sky Songs. It's the latest book from Jennifer Siner. Meditations on Loving a Broken World is the subtitle. Jennifer Siner is professor of English at Utah State University, and uh, you can find her at her uh, website, which is jennifersiner.com. Jennifer Siner, uh, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Tom. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. We hope you join us for live music and a free picnic lunch with UPR staff members at the Bitten Spur Restaurant in Springdale near the entrance to Zion National Park on Tuesday, May 25th from noon to 2. We'd love to have you come and join us whether you live in southern Utah or not. We'll be on the grassy area outside of the Bitten Spur Restaurant. Seating is limited. You can sign up and select your meal at upr.org. The deadline to sign up is Wednesday, May 19th. You can sign up at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.